You know, it's, it, it's funny, Matt. I, when I hear that question, I start thinking, at least in part, like a clinical neuroscientist. And I'm thinking about hippocamp <laughs> hippocampal, hippocampal development and memory consolidation, typically not reliable until about age three. I do have a few early flashback memories. I've got one wonderful memory around age three, being at the beach with my parents. Now, at, at the time, um, my, my parents were from, uh, both of them, from small towns in northern Maine, which for your wow. listeners that aren't familiar with the landscape of, of the U.S. and North America, that's very, very remote, far northern region of the country. There, there are no beaches nearby. But Yeah, it's uh, probably like, my- <laughs> all, like, for anyone listening, it's the Northern Irish version of like... Um, Kulabaki. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> where that is, but I, I'm going to take your word for that. So anyway, they, I guess we were on vacation and they, my, my parents were dear friends with another couple and they were there as well. And just have this really beautiful, vivid memory of just the glorious sunshine and the waves and being out just splashing uh, on the shore and uh, but it's just a little fragment my my earliest really clear memory I, I i it was a really fun thing just to think about this because i i was about 5 years old and we lived next door to a a, a family that had two sons two boys one was 6 one was 9 and they were, I don't know if you remember, Matt, what it's like to be about five years old, but older boys were kind of godlike. Oh my goodness, in, absolutely. In, in their, I mean, you know, they were so large and wise. And so their names were Paul and Gary. Paul was was the nine-year-old. Gary was closer to my age. And miraculously, they took me under their wings. I was I was like their their mascot slash little brother. <laughs> and, and, and I completely idolized them. And they, you know, they were pretty good to me, but they liked to have fun at my expense. So they, they came over one day and I was eating, of, it was, you know, it was early in the morning and I was eating breakfast. I had a bowl of cereal. I don't know if they have this brand in Ireland. It was called Captain Crunch. <laughs> we don't. And, it's probably illegal because of the sugar content. <laughs> and the sugar content is off the chart. So I'm I'm eating, but wait, this was not ordinary Captain Crunch. Uh-oh. This was Cap- Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. Oh. And there was a, 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 a cartoon commercial on TV that would come on with us. Back in the day, we, we had... Uh, all Saturday morning, it was nonstop cartoons on the major broadcast network. So little kids would camp out in front of the TV and, you know, watch eight hours of, well, I don't know, <laughs> several hours of cartoons, get on a sugar high. The parents loved it. And there was a cartoon of somebody um, with Captain Crunch pulling the crunch berries off a crunch berry bush. Oh, yeah. I've seen one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're of course. Cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So anyway... Uh, Paul and Gary see my, my Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries, and they're like, "Oh, hey, have have, have you? Um, do you have a Crunch Berry tree?" Uh, <laughs> I, I said, "No, it just came in the box." And they said, "Well, save save all the berries. We'll we'll go plant them in the backyard." And so we so we went out and we we planted the uh, the, the Crunch Berries, and then f- for weeks after, uh, I'd go out every morning expectantly, waiting to see this, you know. 
miraculous thing. Anyway, it was it was pretty funny. That's unreal. I uh, yeah. <laughs> just that little flavor. I think we could do a whole episode on the adventures of Paul, Gary, and Steve. And um, oh. yeah, I think a, a Northern Irish audience can really resonate with fun at expense of other people. You know, we're known for a bit of a crack shot humor and a lot of sarcasm. So yeah, that's it's definitely up our street. Uh, so yeah, look, if you've just jumped in, if you've just joined us, uh, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that. I'm going to say it usually celebrates uh, Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. But as you've heard today from the accent alone, uh, we're actually breaking our one rule. Uh, I think it's the first time that we've actually done this. Um, and we're doing this because we're interviewing someone who's not connected to Northern Ireland in any way at all. But he's someone who I believe his story and his message and his work is of unbelievable importance uh, to us and to our country as well. So who is Steve Illardy? other than, uh, you know, home grower of Crunchberries. Um, Steve Illardy is a professor of psychology and a clinical researcher specializing in the treatment of mental illness. He's worked with several hundred patients suffering from clinical depression and other serious disorders and has authored over 50 scholarly articles and papers on mental illness. Over the last two decades, Dr. Illardy and his research team have developed and refined a promising treatment for depression called a therapeutic lifestyle change, or a lovely, nice little American abbreviation for everyone, TLC. This innovative approach is grounded in the insight that we as humans were never designed for the indoor, socially isolated, sleep-deprived, fast-food-laden, screen-addicted, frenetic pace of 21st century life. His TEDx talk, Depression is a Disease of Civilization, has been viewed over 2 million times and his book, The Depression Cure, has been translated into 11 languages. So why this interview? Why Steve? Why now? Um, Good questions. And I guess the reason is because I really think that specifically in this time of year, you know, we're in the dark, dreary days of January. Um, it's just after that beautiful Christmas high or that difficult Christmas period that a lot of us has got, have gone through. And I always try to release a couple of episodes that are around the mental health topic um, for us at this time as a country and even just also on a, a personal level as well. So, so much to cover today. Steve's work is absolutely incredible. I read his book uh, about six months ago and just had to reach out to him and thank him for his work and also chance my arm as we say to try to get him on the podcast as well so really excited to do this today and we have had a couple of kind of pre-chat before this conversation and we've really landed on i think three really solid areas of the therapeutic lifestyle change that we think is really relevant to uh, northern ireland specifically and to you guys listening so yep steve i'd love to know uh, something we kind of pulled up in our research was uh how the heck does a mathematics major get into psychology? You know, it's it's funny. Um, there are times when I really wonder if the Almighty has a sense of humor, because <laughs> <laughs> as an undergraduate, uh, one one of my claims to fame, by the way, in in the psychology department at, uh, where I teach, is that I I think I'm the only faculty member that never took a psychology class Love as it. an undergraduate. <laughs> And so, as you said, I was I was a um, mathematics, economics double major, and my best friend and roommate um, at the time was a psych major. And now this is a few decades ago, and psychology, uh, I, I would say, 
has become much more of a rigorous science in the interim mm. at the time. So my, my friend Dan would come back to the room and he'd be sharing some great insight from his psychology classes. Like, um, Children who are aggressive are less popular than those who... <laughs> Groundbreaking <laughs> research. Just absolutely. Broke. <laughs> Listen, I just saw a headline the other day that said, small children can have their happiness elevated by receiving gifts like toys. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? So, I absolutely love that because... Um, you know, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, I think they have a great quote where it's like, all of our research is done is just proven all the stuff our granny said was right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's it's funny you'd go there because that is literally what I said to my friend Dan. I said, look, bring me back something from psychology that my grandmother could not have told me. Oh, wow. And, and you know, so I, I was, I was, a little bit unkind. We, I mean, we're, we're, we're good friends, but we like to, to bust each other's chops a little bit. And so having made it all the way through undergrad with, with no psychology at all. And I think with a really jaded sort of perception of uh, psychology being more of a bogus field, I was 24 years old and I was working for a big bank at the time, Wells Fargo Bank. I don't, I don't know if that's one that that you or your listeners would know about, but it was like a top ten bank in the world, doing econometric modeling and uh, completely miserable. Mm. Absolutely, you know, it's um, Matt. It's the only time in my life I think when I would wake up in the morning just with a feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach, thinking, wow. you know. Um, I've got this huge office overlooking the city. They're paying me a lot of money. This is pretty heady stuff for a 24-year-old. I was engaged um, to marry the love of my life. We've, we've been married thir 31 years now. But um, I, I really hated my job because it just felt very empty. And I'm one of those people, I think, that, that just needs to feel deeply connected to, to the work that I'm doing. And so I went back and, and rang up my, my old college roommate and uh, tail between my legs. And I said, you know, <laughs> um, I, I'm looking for, for, for something. Um, I just need a sense of meaning and purpose in what I'm doing. He said, you know, I've got a great idea. He said, there, there is a psychiatric hospital not too far from you, where they have the most severely mentally ill patients that are kind of warehoused away. A lot of them, I mean, they're, they're institutionalized. They've, many of them have been abandoned by their families. They have nobody. And they're always looking for volunteers to come in and just spend time, just to hang out with them, just to, to give them a human connection outside the institution. Would you do that? And, uh, and I love the challenge. I mean, it sounded really kind of frightening, but also um, just intriguing. And I, I started volunteering a couple days a week um, after work. I would, would drive over, hang out, play cards, and just get to know. A lot of these, these patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, some of them had committed really violent acts under the influence of a psychotic episode. But to me, they they were fellow human beings, and and it was it, it was extraordinary because I just felt this incredible sense of um, compassion that I you know I was really surprised by um, 
the fear melted away. And what I saw was just fellow human beings that were suffering. And then uh, an incredible thing happened. I, I got really kind of hooked on an intellectual level. I had a, a pretty strong background in computer science and, and programming. And so I had some, some, I think, really helpful off-the-shelf intuitions about the brain as a kind of wetware, mm. basically adapted, designed to encode and process information so that mental activity could be seen as a type of software. Um, and then mental illness when viewed through that lens, even something as, as disabling and, and strange seeming as psychosis or losing touch with reality, hallucinating or having delusional thoughts that, that are completely at variance with reality. All of those things started to make sense to me as ultimately aberrations of encoding information in the brain's hardware and processing it wow. appropriately. And, and so I, I became hooked intellectually but in a way that really tapped into that 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 yearning to to make a difference, and so it became a, a, a quest. It became a quest of <laughs> how can I how can I translate this new passion, this new obsession, into something you know that that would actually fill my days. And so I uh, I started taking psychology classes in night school. And had a grand total of three under my belt when <laughs> audaciously <laughs> I talked to my wife. Uh, we had just gotten married. I was 25 at the time. And um, I said, you know, I, I really, I think I want to be a clinical psychologist. And, sh and I said, it, it, you know, really the, the, the dream that I'm forming, it would involve probably about five years of study to get a PhD. And, you know, she gave me the most wonderful gift, which is, uh, I mean, because I, I can imagine a lot of a lot of um, spouses in that situation would would think like, you know, we we're 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 just starting off. We're comfortable. Everything is great. And you're talking about moving us across yeah. the country, bro. We've got a ladder to climb. Like, do you not see this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and she turned to me and and said, you know. I want you to be happy. I want you to follow your dreams. I want to be a part of that journey with you. Um, if this is really, truly what you feel you're being called to, then, then I want to support that. Mm. And, you know, what an, what an amazing, loving response. And, and, you know, it really set the stage for everything that followed. I, I applied to PhD programs. Uh, like I said, with literally just three psycho psychology <laughs> courses under my belt, my my graduate students can't believe it because I mean the hoops that they have to jump through. I I think honestly, more than anything else, the the programs that I applied to were just kind of intrigued. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> this is a math major. Yeah. Um, but but they, I think they liked that background. It really helped. Another little twist of fate. Um, my, my undergraduate college was it's it's called Emory University in Atlanta, and it's literally a mile away from the Centers for Disease Control, CDC. Oh, wow. And so I qualified as, as a first-year student in, in university for a what they call a work-study work study fellowship, basically um, a subsidized job that would help pay my way through school. And um, 
I, I, I have this vivid memory of walking into the, the work study office first year and they said, well, we've got three possible positions for you. One, you'd be uh, checking IDs at the, <laughs> at the recreation center. One, you would be checking IDs at, at a dormitory at night. And, and then they said, you, you don't know anything about computers or programming, do you? Hey. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, I, I do. And they said, well, you know, there's a position at, at CDC. They're looking for someone to help write some code for some of the epidemiological work that they're doing um, in Africa. And I said, yes, I'll take that one. please." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, let me go home and think about it. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, talk about a, just, you know, the stars lining up. So I, I did that, that gig all four years. And um, luckily, because, you know, when, when you're applying to a PhD program, a very research-oriented program, they, they want to know that you've got some, some research background. And I didn't have any psychology research, but I had this epidemiological work. And I, th I really think that's what opened the door. So somehow... Um, against all odds, I was, was accepted into many of the programs I applied to spent five years, um, just throwing myself into graduate study in, in psychology and, um, ended up working with an incredible mentor, a guy named Do Dr. Ed Craighead. And he was a, uh, internationally known specialist in clinical depression. And we, we hit it off right away in our interview. And um, depression was not something I had really set out to study. I was much more interested in personality and ways in which personality uh, foibles and, and, and disorders can actually influence our mental health and mm. our mental illness. And he was a depression guy, um, as we say in the business, he was a depression guy. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, um, I've been really wanting to uh, branch out and look at the intersection between personality pathology and clinical depression. He said, you know, I think this could be a good fit if you're, if you're interested in that kind of work. And I said, absolutely. So um, he taught me all about clinical depression. And in, in a way, I didn't really need that teaching because um, I quickly realized I, I, I knew this illness far better than I'd ever put together because three of my closest loved ones had battled depression, even though I, I had not myself, mm. um, you know, for which I'm profoundly grateful. Um, but, but I knew it from the inside because I I'd seen it up close and I'd, I'd seen how treacherous and how relentless and how devastating that could be. And, and, you know, by the way, I don't want listeners to, to get any sort of impression that I'm somehow mercifully free from, from any kind of psychological <laughs> suffering or distress. I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm a little tightly wound by disposition, disposition. I, you know, we have a, uh, a personality construct we call neuroticism, which basically just registers <laughs> like your, how, how, how angsty and high strung uh, a person is. And I, let's just say I'm above the 50th percentile oh, and we'll just that. leave it at that. Yeah. 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 But, but uh, that, that's, that's really interesting that you shared that because 
a little kind of note that I had uh, scribbled down. It really was kind of like a missing piece in the puzzle. I was like, what was it about Steve whenever he walked into those fairly extreme psychiatric wards that he, he had that level of compassion and empathy that I think without makes it very difficult to remain and engage in those situations. But yeah, it's it's very interesting that you kind of, uh, as you said, you got to your front row seats to um, really the hardships that, that, that people go through, you know, in your own family. So that's very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it. in my experience, and I, I know a lot, I've, I've been really privileged to get to know some pretty famous researchers in the field and, and innovators, treatment innovators. I mean, one, one of our biggest innovators uh, is Marsha Linehan, who developed a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy for one of our most serious disorders called borderline personality disorder. And Marsha recently w- uh, published her memoir in which she re- she stunned the world by saying something that I, I had always really suspected to be true that she had herself struggled with borderline personality disorder and the treatment that she developed, which is by the way, you know, been revolutionary and has changed across the world, the way in which we think about treating this disorder, that treatment grew out of her own efforts at healing her own illness. Wow. So, um, and we see that time and again, there's always a story. There's always some connection. And it doesn't, mm. doesn't mean by the way that everybody, um, is, I mean, you know, there, there's a really funny sort of stereotype uh, about psychology majors that, oh, well, you know, psych majors are just doing this. They're just studying this or, or, or you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, just heal doing, thyself. <laughs> it, it, yes, yes, exactly. And, I, you know, I, 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 that does sometimes happen for sure. But sometimes the, the motivation is a little, a little more complex or a mm. little, uh, you know, there there are a lot of different ways that narrative can play itself That's out. That's really and, interesting. And, yeah, yeah. I think um, something that I'd like to kind of just bring to the table at this point, like as someone who has grown up in Northern Ireland and kind of gone through, you know, at least Northern Ireland post nineteen ninety five, which I, I know a lot of listeners are kind of in the same boat. Um, I would say, like our cultural view of depression is very much focused on the mental and what i mean by that is like if you talk to someone who uh is depressed or you know is having a depressive episode and i've been you know very open on the podcast before about my experience my own kind of journey with depression uh, really from an early age but i even in my own personal life i always tried to come at it from okay you know this is to do with some sort of family thing and then I would I'm like, no, no, that's not it. And then I'd be like, okay, it's 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 definitely, without a shadow of doubt, a personality um, trait that I need to fix. And then I'd be like, no, 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 it's definitely not that. It's, it's connected to burnout. I'm working too hard. And I would just kind of cycle through all these things. But the very last place that I checked, and I feel like that a lot of Northern Irish people, um, it's the last place we go, is actually the physical. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about um, taking medicine, because that's, um, becoming increasingly popular as I think our medical systems kind of catch up to offering mental health treatment. But I'm talking like kind of what we were talking about at the start, the stuff that your granny always told you to do. You know, it's like, you, you, oh, she, like I remember my granny always like 
you know, on the weekends and stuff, like coming into my room and like opening the curtains and being like, oh, you need to get out of your pit. You need to go outside. It's, it's bad for you to be in here playing Xbox. And I'd be like, Granny, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, da 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 And so many times now in life, I've been like, oh my goodness, my granny was right. And your work's been really helpful with this. It's helped me start to understand a hunch that I had for really my whole life of why did it seem like depression rates were exponentially lower for my granny's generation than they are for mine? And I'd love just to kind of use that as a launching pad into some of the research and some of the breakthroughs that you guys have developed. And actually, maybe a great place to start with that would be your nine-year-old birthday gift of the Polaroid camera. Let's start there. Yeah, so I got a Polaroid camera, which I was super excited about. And, uh, you know, probably younger listeners have no idea what, what the heck this, this is all about. But the, the idea was that, that you would take a, a, a picture with this camera and it would spit out the actual hard copy photo and you would watch it developing. It was, you know, really kind of magical. Over the next couple minutes, you would start to see the image slowly form and be, become more vivid and colorful and crisp and clear. And um, the first few pictures that I took with it were outside and the lighting was great. And, and the pictures were you know, pr- pretty good for a nine-year-old. <laughs> Instagram, but, pre-Instagram. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. I think I may, I, somewhere in a box in my mother's attic, there may still be some of these, these Polaroid photos. But, but um, I, I was really desperately disappointed to learn when I took the camera inside that the the pictures never came out. They were just all dark and smudgy. And, uh, you know, I, I think my parents had to explain that, uh, well, there's a separate flash and we can buy that. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the lighting is, is, is much dimmer inside. And, you know, it's a little counterintuitive because our, our eyes are so exquisitely uh, designed that they accommodate the differences in light in a way that we perceive most of the time is pretty seamless. It, it doesn't, I mean, if you tell the average person that the intensity of light on a bright sunny day outside is about a thousand times brighter than, than the intensity of a well-lit indoor office. My goodness. Yeah. I mean, it just, it doesn't feel that way at all. I mean, we're talking orders of magnitude, but, but that, that, that's the reality. And, and our eyes basically compensate so well that we don't notice, but the, the Polaroid doesn't lie, right? <laughs> the Polaroid <laughs> is like, Hey, you know, we're going to need a lot more light. And, and so here's, here's the thing. Our ancestors for literally hundreds of thousands of years spent the vast majority of their life outside. Um, they, they might, throw up a, a hut or a dwelling or something that they would, would uh, be in occasionally. But for most of the waking hours, they're outside. And to a first approximation, they were all on a lifelong camping trip with 30 to 50 of their closest <laughs> friends and relatives. That is and, such a good way to put it. Oh my goodness. And, yeah. And, and I mean, so that was the world. That was the crucible within which was forged most of our physical and mental adaptations, most of our hardware, most of our software is designed with that world in mind. Now, you know, that doesn't mean, by the way, that there haven't been any genetic changes sure. over the last 10,000 10, years or so since, since agriculture was in, I mean, agriculture's really neat trick, um, <laughs> grow, growing crops, raising food, 
husbanding uh, animals for sustenance. And so, I mean, it, it, it was revolutionary. There have been probably three to 500 documented changes in the genome that have helped shape us to the agrarian world, but they're little. And what's agrarian? You know, Sorry, just to jump in. There. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, having to do with with um, agriculture. So, oh, yeah, got you. So, so a farm based. A, so, I mean, one way to think about it is for ninety nine percent of human and hominid existence, our ancestors made their living hunting and gathering, foraging. About ten thousand years ago, some of them started with a new way of making their living basically settlement farming mm -hmm. and animal husbandry. So most of our genetic adaptations are designing our brains, our bodies, our minds to thrive in a radically different world in a landscape again, where we're, we're outside all the time and we're physically active and we're living in really small, tight, close knit communities. And our days are filled with immediately engaging sorts of tasks for which we get immediate feedback mm. that we're making progress or, or we're not. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a, a whole food diet. It was, a not, <laughs> there was no processed food. There's certainly no ultra processed, ultra refined sugars no and carbs. berries in the wild. There were no crunch berries. <laughs> Sadly, there were no crunch berries in the wild, but, um, our, our eyes, this is kind of weird and a little bit trippy, but if you talk to practicing neuroscientists, what they will will tell you is that the back of the eyeball, the retina, which is the, the light sensitive part of the back of the eye, it's technically part of the brain. Did you wow. know that? I actually yeah. had no idea. Yeah. The retina is actually part of the brain in, uh, you know, developmentally as, as tissue. And it has these specialized cells that only fire. They only signal information when they're encountering light Damn. and, there are some that only fire in the presence of light that is brighter than anything that we typically encounter indoors. Why? They're designed for that outdoor lifelong camping trip. And, and these cells in the back of the eye have a broadband connection to the center of the brain. If listeners want to look it up, it's called the SCN or the suprachiasmic nucleus in the hypothalamus in the center of the brain. And it's ground zero for body clock circuitry. Our, our own internal clock that regulates our energy and our sleep, wake, arousal, hormone levels. And it's looking for input. So here is a really novel way of thinking about it, but one that is neuroscientifically right on point. Light acts like a drug. Mm. Light is a drug that hits brain cells in the back of the eye and tells them essentially, hey, it's time now to get on this sort of circadian body clock rhythm or cycle. Because here's the thing. The body clock is not a Rolex. The, our body <laughs> clock, they, I mean, they've done experiments. You've, maybe you've, you've heard about them or read about them. But you know, when you, when you take a person and put them in a sensory deprivation sort of environment, maybe, you know, something cave, like a few floors underground where they have no natural circadian cues. Um, within a few days, their body clock starts to drift wow. and it drifts 
for the average person, about an hour on every 24-hour cycle. Um, so basically, if we don't reset the body clock really regularly, then we're going to get in real trouble. Because if, if, if the body clock drifts by more than an hour or two, it's going to have a huge impact on the quality of our sleep. Um, basically, you know, we're going to have insomnia. Either we're going to be uh, waking up way too early. We're going to be having trouble falling, falling asleep at our normal bedtime. Our sleep is going to be fragmented. It's going to feel like we have jet lag. Well, that's what a lot of people experience so every winter. The body clock is kind of like back to granny. It's the wind up clock that you got to keep kind of winding up every now and then. And the way we do this in terms of our own brains is with light. Brilliant. Yeah, which exactly. Is, which right. is why, as to what you were about to say about winter, this is why we're in such a vulnerable season, I guess. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so think about this for, for our ancestors, um, their body clocks were reset every single morning at mm. dawn. And, you know, it, it, it's really bizarre to think about, but even a cloudy, gloomy day where the clouds feel like they're a mile thick and it's just kind of, oh, you know, gray outside. We know all about that. You're preaching to the <laughs> choir and I. <laughs> <laughs> even one of those days is about five times brighter than a typical, quote, brightly lit indoor room. Man, that is, that is hard to get your head around. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and so, yeah, you know, the, the dose of light on that kind of morning is, is far lower than if it were bright and crisp and sunny, but it's, it's a big enough dose that for our ancestors within about now at that low dose, it might take an hour or so within an hour or so their, their body clock is like, okay, yeah, I got it. Right. We got to re- So, so it's all wound up and it's ready to go. Their sleep is going to be fine that night. Their, you know, their hormone levels are going to be regulated properly throughout the day, their arousal, their energy, their focus, all of those things. But for those of us in the modern world who are waking up before the sun comes up, maybe we're driving into work even, mm. um, you know, uh, while it's still dark out. Have you ever had this where you're both, you know, you're going to work when it's dark, you're coming home when it's dark? Steve, look, for like, I would say 80% of our listeners, this is the, this is our current life because, you know, we are much higher up, uh, further above the equator than you are. And I would say sometimes you're talking 8 o'clock, 8.30 before the sun even starts to peak up. And it gets dark maybe around four. So you know we yeah. we're, we're we're not we're not as bad as Sweden, but you know we're we're in the same neighborhood. I feel like sometimes, yeah, and and that that can be pretty brutal, because what what often happens then is the the, the body clock is completely out of sync, and over time, what that means is that hormone levels get out of sync, and sleep becomes much less restful much less efficient for many people. Now, there are genetic variations. Some people are way more vulnerable to this than others. There's even some really intriguing evidence that people whose ancestors for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have lived in far northern latitudes, that they're better adapted on average than those of us who have ancestors. Now, uh, you know this about me, but your listeners don't. So the name Ilardi, uh, it's Italian, 
And my father's family was from Italy. My mother's family, however, you said I had no connections to Northern Ireland. Uh-oh. Let me set the debunked. record straight. Yeah, I, I've got to debunk it. We've got a fact check. Right there's now. a fact check. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say fake news, but but, but I will say. Oh no, we've just made I, headlines. Crap. I, yeah. Um, my my mother's maiden name is Duty which uh, had been Irishized from the original Scottish name, McDowd, and Mm. her mother's uh, maiden name was McPhee. And according to family lore, at least, we are Scotch-Irish on on that side. So... um, so I've got a little bit of a connection there. <laughs> we'll However, play it, we'll play it up heavily now. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just got to share this really cool finding with you. So if you if you go even further up in latitude to Iceland, um, and you come across, there are parts of Iceland that are you know nearly bordering on the Arctic Circle, and you come across the Arctic Circle to the north of Norway to a city called Tromsø. Um, which I I might have been there. Ah, okay. Midnight well, sun in the summer? Yeah. Awful yeah, in the winter? <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. Okay, so here's the deal. Iceland, ha- this may have changed a little bit recently, but there was a study that was done a couple decades ago that looked at the prevalence of winter onset depression in Iceland versus Tromsø. Now, in Iceland, most of the residents of Reykjavik and the surrounding area uh, have had ancestors that lived on the island for over 10 centuries or, or something approximating 10 centuries. And they have a very low annual prevalence of winter onset depression. Wow. It, it was something in the range of two to 3% of new onset seasonal pattern. We call it seasonal pattern depression. It's sometimes called seasonal affective disorder or SAD if you go across the Arctic Circle to Tromsø, the prevalence was over five times higher. And uh, what the researchers realized was that by virtue of being a prominent part of the EU and accessible to much of the rest of Europe and having uh, uh, local industries that pulled in people from all over southern Europe that many of the residents had more Mediterranean ancestry and they were far more vulnerable. Yeah. 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 So there, there are huge genetic variations. It doesn't mean by the way, that if your family's been in, in Northern Ireland for 2000 years, that, that you're completely invulnerable. But I think it's a really great point on the kind of idea that every, like in all of this and even in the six steps and even in what we're talking about today, you got to experiment for yourself because what works for someone might not work for you and vice versa, you know? And I think that's maybe something that we love lists. We love prescriptions. We love to follow things to the letter, but that little bit of self-experimentation and doing things and then reacting and seeing how you react, sorry, is I think I can't stress that enough in, in terms of its importance. Absolutely. It's, it's really become one of the mantras in, in my clinical research group. And it's just, you know, you, you put it beautifully. There, there is no one size fits all approach when it comes to understanding and treating depression. Depression, well, first of all, there's a lot of misconception about what it is. Um, the difference between depressive illness versus just yeah, everyday sadness and yeah. And then the idea that depressive 
illness is often sold to the public as, well, no, it's a real illness because it involves chemical imbalance in mm. the brain. And that when people hear that framing, chemical imbalance, they automatically jump to the idea that, oh, well, if it's chemical imbalance, then I have to throw chemicals at it. I have to, you know, I can only treat it with meds. Right. Um, but but in fact, it turns... So this is back to your point about, you know, is this something that's due to something that happened in childhood yeah, 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 or yeah. how you think, but, you know, it's more physical. It's like, well, you know, depression is encoded at multiple levels in the body, in the brain, in the mind, from the molecular genetic all the way up through the the neurocognitive, all the way to the behavioral and social. And they all intersect, they all interact. And um, it turns out that, you know, if you if you say depression is a chemical imbalance, that that's true, but it doesn't tell you anything about the the most effective way of treating any given case. Why? Because experience changes the brain and mm. physical movement changes the brain and light exposure changes the brain. And, you know, well, that's, we th that's the thing. Like, and that's why I think it was so I, and you said this is going to be a novel concept. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I hear novel concepts all the time. And then you say light is a, is a drug. And I was like, whoa, actually, that is a novel concept. So like <laughs> on the light, how is that sort of piece of the puzzle important in the prevention and the treatment of depression? Well, it, you know, I think very often when people think about depression as an illness, which I think is, is, is a perfectly valid way of framing it. Depression is like an illness. In fact, just a, a quick little digression and we'll circle back around. The brain in a depressed state in many respects, is similar to a brain fighting a severe viral infection. Mm. You know that that sensation that you get when you have a, a high fever and you're aching and yep. you, you just you feel so miserable and all you want to do, you're getting a powerful push from the brain that says, shut down and go crawl into a hole somewhere, get away mm. from people. That's an adaptation. That's an evolutionary adaptation in every social mammal that says, hey, you know, you may have an infectious pathogen and your body needs to shut down so you can fight it off and heal. And you want to withdraw from everybody in your social network so you don't infect them. Here's the deal, though. Those same illness circuits fire like crazy when we're battling clinical depression, except now it's a false signal. It's not helpful. It's not an adaptation. The person who's battling depressive illness also has a strong urge. The brain is saying, shut down and pull away, withdraw from wow. everybody you care about. And the person who's depressed actually, in many cases, and I've worked with hundreds of people that have battled depressive illness, and many of them, probably the majority, have told me in so many words that they just kind of feel infectious mm. in the sense that, you know, well, I'm going to pull everybody down. I'm, you know, I, people don't want to be around me. I, I'm no good to anybody. And, you know, that's not for a few days. That's not a bad way to feel when we have COVID, when we have sure, yeah. the flu where it's like, you know, actually that that's good. You don't want to be yeah, around yeah. your loved ones. Um, listen to your brain. Here's what I have to tell my depressed patients, Matt. In this case, first, I want to validate for them. I'll, I'll validate. I'll say, look, yeah, you're absolutely getting that message from your brain. It is telling you to shut down and withdraw, but that's part 
of the illness and we cannot listen to it because mm. those are things that will only serve to perpetuate it and possibly to make it worse because when we are alone we tend to dwell and brood on whatever's on our mind and when people are depressed what's on their mind is a lot of negative thoughts and so they just stew in that and ruminate and it makes it worse it amplifies the intensity of their negative mood and you know being cut off from the people who matter the most being isolated it's a recipe for psychological disaster and so i have to gently encourage wow. them to basically tell their brain to go jump in a lake you know just yeah. to like like uh this is a false signal it feels true but um you know i and that's where by the way clinical rapport is is so important right because i'm asking people to to take a leap of faith you know to to metaphorically at least take me by the hand and um step out of their comfort zone a bit um to to you know to connect with others when you feel like pulling away to pursue some sort of activity when you just feel like crawling into a cave um so it's it's not easy interesting mm -hmm. um a, a big standout kind of interview that we've had on the podcast is with a guy called gary lightbody and gary's the lead singer of one of our most loved and most successful bands here called snow patrol and he oh yeah he came out um mm. you know in recent years and was very open about his battles with depression his battles with alcoholism and uh, funny, like the, the big quote that I have from our interview with him was, it's all about activity. And he pretty much was saying like, you know, like the, the enemy of depression is activity and depression hates activity. And he's a big proponent for running. He's a big proponent for, like you said, like forcing yourself to go against the the very strong impulse that your brain is sending you to to withdraw, but actually to, to push in further. So oh, it's so interesting to kind of start to see some of the science behind a lot of the common advice that, that is out there as well. So no, this is great. I, I'm loving it. I'm like in my element. I'm like, dude, give me more. Give me more. <laughs> well, let me let me give you a little bit more because, there, you know, it's it one of the really interesting epiphanies in my professional career in developing this lifestyle-based treatment approach to depression is I, I, I've had a range of responses from professional colleagues and they all have a grain of truth, but I think that they're all missing something important. So one of the responses that I, I really take seriously is, um, you know, they'll say, Steve, yes, we get it that um, exercise has been research proven to change brain chemistry and fight depression, at least as effectively as any medication that we currently have on offer. Light therapy, for, especially for people with winter onset depression, not only at least as effective as any medication, but faster for the average patient. Wow. Um, and just yeah, real that, quick, like um, use the term light therapy there. Uh, yes. What What does that actually look like? If you know, I'm in Northern Ireland and I, I can't just turn the sun on, like what's the solution? Yeah, well, the solution is we, we want to give the brain a dose of light that is basically equivalent to the dose our ancestors would have received at dawn when they're outside in the natural world. Um, so basically, you can ask the question, we measure light in units known as LUX, L-U-X, 
And the typical indoor room is about 100 to 200 lux. Outdoors, a half hour after the sun's come up, it's at least 10,000 lux. Wow. And that's, that's the sweet spot for a therapeutic effect. We, we want to be giving the brain through the back of the eye about 10,000 lux. It, it's gonna, the brain is most receptive to that dose in the morning. It, it can take place in the middle of the day. It's better in the morning. Um, a half hour within one hour of waking up, a half hour of 10,000 lux of light has been shown to be profoundly antidepressant, wow. especially for those who are light deficient in the winter. Um, there are therapeutic light boxes that you can set on your desk, you can set on your kitchen table, and they are way brighter than any typical lamp <laughs> or overhead light or candle or anything else you happen to have, any luminant device that you have on, on, on your premises. I think maybe in the UK and Ireland, we, I think we call it a sad lamp. Would that make sense? Yeah, so, so sad for seasonal affective disorder. It's a, just another there term for is. winter depression. Okay. Um, so it's an acronym. And yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> this will tell you something. <laughs> well, no, you're what, what's really hilarious is I was just thinking, and we don't have to chase down this rabbit hole, but, but the, the American versus Irish temperament in the U S we often call them happy lamps. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you know what, man? I'm stealing that metaphor as a perfect picture and shorthand of the difference between American mindset and Irish mindset. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So for you, yes, we'll call it a sad lamp. And, and, um, they, they, they throw out 10,000 lux. Now, you got to be a little careful to read the fine print because basically any light source, as you hold it closer to your eyes, it gets brighter, right? Mm. And you can have like the, the flashlight on the back of your phone. If you shine it right in your eye, it's 10,000 lux. <laughs> yeah. If you but take it, your eye out and put it on your it, retina, it'll do the yeah, job. <laughs> yeah. But, but so you, you want, you want a, uh, a light box or a, a, what do you call it? A sad lamp <laughs> that, uh, you want one that's going to, to be 10,000 lux at a, at a comfortable distance. And I would say for most of us, that's going to be probably at least 16, 18 inches. So, or what, so 30, 40 away. centimeters r roughly. I don't know. At, at least, yeah, <laughs> I would say at least, at least 40 centimeters, uh, maybe 50 would be, would cool. be a really powerful box. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, that sort of device now, you know, obviously if, if, if it's a time of year when, when the sun is up or you just happen to be in a location where the sun is up in the morning, you know, I, I'd far rather people do this outside, mm. but, but yeah, the, the light boxes is, is a lifesaver for so many people cool. that get winter onset depression. So give me just a little bit more. Cause I, I'm, I'm conscious that, uh, we have a lot of, uh, other kind of stuff we want to cover, but, uh, so I understand the light boxes impact or, you know, the light therapy's impact on sleep because as you described the body clock, I get that. Does light itself as a drug do anything else for us whenever it comes to preventing or treating depression? Yeah, it, it, um, it's so interesting. It's been discovered that in the winter, if you put people in a brain scanner and I, I don't mean people that are depressed. I mean, just anyone in the population in the far Northern hemisphere, you will see telltale signs in the brain that serotonin activity has declined. Wow. And serotonin is a, a brain chemical. Most people know that regulates circuitry that, that helps basically keep us in equilibrium 
it it regulates our stress circuits. So we think of those as, you know, an extreme form is the fight or flight uh, circuitry of the brain. It regulates our level of, of anxious arousal. It regulates our sense of just sort of general well-being. It's not regulating the pleasure centers, our sense of reward or drive. Those are regulated more by dopamine. But both serotonin and dopamine signaling drop in the wintertime. And so in general, you know, even people that don't have seasonal depression, many of us will feel more sluggish, will feel like our sleep isn't quite as restful. It's almost like we're getting a very primal urge to hibernate Mm. a bit. People do gain weight on average. Uh, just like a hibernating animal, we, we do put we do put on. Not only do we put on weight, our blood sugar levels increase on average. Our craving for carbohydrates will increase. Our insulin levels will increase. Our level of uh, overall energy and arousal will drop. Uh, and when people are light deficient, they often feel uh, more anxious. And here's the real kicker, and this is going to surprise a lot of people. They feel more ADHD-ish. And so neurocognitive assessments show if you assess people in the middle of winter, their memory and their focus and their concentration actually drop. And for some people, that drop is really significant. So light therapy, get this, Matt, light therapy not only has antidepressant properties, but for some people, it uh, helps their attention, their focus, their mental clarity. For some people, it helps their anxiety. But I got to give a, a huge disclaimer there because some people with light, um, especially the first few times they use it, can feel a little bit edgy, a little bit agitated. It can be energizing in a way that people sometimes interpret as, oh, I, you know, this doesn't feel good. It feels yeah, 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 yeah. J- sort of like having too many cups of coffee or something, gotcha. a little jittery gotcha. or something. Yeah. Cool. So how does this um, relate or bridge into a lot of your research and findings on vitamin D? Because I, And it's great, actually, because this conversation has really helped me separate the two, how light is its own separate drug. And vitamin D, to, to put it uh, kind of grotesquely, is its own sort of drug <laughs> that probably has its own different impacts. Could you maybe walk us through that? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're exposed to sunlight, we, we, we get two different effects, right? So there's the basic light brightness, luminance effect that hits the retina, the back of the eye. But there's also ultraviolet light. So think in terms of UV radiation, that we really don't want in the eyes. I mean, we do get some of it, and luckily most of it's filtered out before it gets to the back of the eye because it's damaging. In fact, you know, when people get um, uh, cataracts and their lenses in the eye cloud up as they get older, that that's cumulative UV damage. Mm. But ultraviolet light is incredibly important. It's another kind of drug that it actually penetrates deep into the skin when the sun is, is strong enough. And in, by the way, in Northern Ireland, that's only going to be about four months of the year. No, four days of the year. <laughs> it may, it may, yeah. Well, okay. I, I was trying to be, I was trying to be nice. I was trying to be kind here, here in central USA. It's, it's like, you know, seven and a half months of the year. Yeah. You, you get a few days of, you know, in the, in midsummer where there's enough ultraviolet light to penetrate 
a few millimeters down into the capillaries of the skin, you, guess what it interacts with? It interacts with cholesterol. What? Yeah. And there are specialized cells in the skin that take the you in the presence of ultraviolet light, turn cholesterol into vitamin D. And yeah. vitamin yeah, it's it's wild. And vitamin D acts in the body, in the brain, like a hormone in many respects. It's it's a little bit of a controversy in the field right now. Is vitamin D really a vitamin? Is it a nutrient? Is it a hormone? Um, it's kind of all of the above. And one of the things vitamin D does is cross into the brain through the bloodstream, and it acts like a key that unlocks or locks the expression of different genes in brain cells that need to be turned on or off. And when we're deficient in vitamin D, then those uh, key-like effects are absent, and we can wind up with with uh, genes that need to be expressed in the brain that aren't, vice versa, and it, it can lead to some real problems. Well, guess what? Vitamin D deficiency is pretty strongly linked with clinical depression. All the mechanisms haven't been clearly worked out. One of them, though, a really important one has to do with neuroinflammation. So this is an inflammatory process in the brain. As a first approximation, the inflamed brain is often a depressed brain. The converse of that statement is not always true, and that's a fancy way of saying not everybody with depression has inflammation. Okay. Um, but typically speaking, people who have a lot of inflammation in the brain will find themselves battling depressive symptoms. So, Which, anything from a pure bro science, uninitiated point of view that I have... It reminds me of what you're talking about, this similar brain response of whenever I have a virus. It's like there's something wrong in my system and my body's trying to fight against it. Anyway. No, absolutely. And in, in fact, just like we were talking about earlier, um, not only does the virus activate some of the circuitry in the brain that's associated with depression, right? Shut down, pull away. But... When the body is fighting that virus, its early response to the virus is based on activating the native immune system. That's not the acquired immune system, like after we've already gotten immunity because we've had a vaccine or something, but just that very first response. So all the first responders for the first couple of days fighting the virus, like the immune system has never seen it before, but it's like, well, we got general purpose killer cells. We're going to go after it. Guess what? That is an inflammatory response. Wow. And when we're fighting a virus, like just a, a head cold, um, people who have had difficulty with depression in the past will often feel the return in a subtle way, the return of some of their depressive symptoms. And by the way, it's really, if I could just encourage listeners, it's really important if they ever experience this to not panic. To not assume, oh, you know, oh God, you know, it's gonna, it's all about to, I'm gonna go all the way down to the bottom of the hill. I'm gonna have the full blown illness again. It's like, no, th this is, this is an inflammatory reaction. Uh, it will pass quickly. And it, 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 it doesn't mean I'm doomed to have the full return of, of that full blown illness. Wow. Super powerful. So I guess then in terms of practically, like I, I like this so far because so far we've uh, covered things that can all be done as part of a morning routine. Okay. So I can sit down with my breakfast cereal, you know, my Crunchberry Captain Crunch special limited edition. Uh, I can eat that with my light box uh, for half an hour. 
And I can also, if I, I cannot get vitamin D naturally because of where I live or because of the season, I can also take some form of vitamin D supplement, right? Exactly right. And we find that by the end of winter, so think about, you know, for most people, they're going to be making vitamin D naturally based on sun exposure, probably up until in the Northern Hemisphere, up until sometime in September or so. And then the UV is just much weaker and it's not going to happen. So now for the entire winter, their body is living off reserves, vitamin D that's been stored away in the body for the winter. By the time February, March, April roll around, those reserves for many people are completely gone. Now they're running on fumes and inflammation levels start to spike. And uh, so what's the solution? Well, my favorite solution is to, if, if, if the budget permits, fly someplace tropical <laughs> and get out on a beach somewhere uh, for a week or two. But, um, you know, the, the more pragmatic solution is just to get a vitamin D supplement. And the typical dosing that we find that's going to be therapeutic is somewhere in the range of 2,000 to 4,000 IUs. So vitamin D is a bit of an odd one. Most of our supplements are measured in milligrams or grams. Um, IU stands for international units. And and, uh, vitamin D, somewhere in the 2,000 to 4,000 IU range daily, has found to be the sweet spot for uh, protection against depression. Okay, okay. So let me think. Quick recap then. We've got the light therapy. We've got the vitamin D. And something else that we could do in the morning and that I've been doing in the morning Mm -hmm. since reading your book, The Depression Cure, is taking omega-3 fish oil supplements, which I think out of all the six steps in the book, I was like, nah, really? This this couldn't be it. Like this couldn't this couldn't make an impact on depression. This couldn't change my brain in that big a way. So I'd love to kind of hear your riff and share some of your findings about the importance of omega-3 for our brain, particularly whenever it comes to depression. Yeah, so one one way into thinking about it is just to recognize that the brain itself is mostly made out of fat. So yeah, it's, it's it really shocked me the first time I, I heard this little factoid. But <laughs> but yeah, fathead exactly. Sixty percent of the brain is fat, and most of the fats that make up the brain, the body knows how to make. But there are two main families of fats that our bodies can't make. They can only come from our diet. And so we call them essential fats or essential fatty acids. They're omega-3s and omega-6s. The the numbers and the omega part just has to do with the, the shape of the molecule and where it has a double carbon bond. It's, you know, nitty gritty details. Nobody needs to know. <laughs> but but um, here's the thing we do need to know. Omega-3s are um, really critical as building blocks of the membrane that lines all of our brain cells. And they also help shuttle these building blocks. Think of them almost like Legos that have to be snapped into place in that membrane. So the brain cells fire as as they're uh, supposed to. The omega-3s are really critical in that process. And guess what? The modern ultra-processed diet is super deficient in omega-3s for the average person. And uh, omega-6s, by the way, they play also a complementary important role. 
our ancestors got those two families of fats. Typically, if you look at, at ancestral diets, if we look at how aboriginal groups across the world eat, there's obviously a lot of re- regional variation. But um, generally speaking, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 is about one to one. In the modern Western diet, the ratio is more like 17 to one. Oh, no. Super top heavy on omega-6s. Oh, but wait, it gets worse. Not only do we lack the omega-3s that we need for proper construction of brain tissue, but omega-3s are also building blocks for hormones that mediate inflammation and and specifically anti-inflammatory hormones. Omega-6s promote inflammation. And so what that means is that we have an epidemic of inflammatory illness. These are, um, you know, probably a lot of listeners have heard of autoimmune diseases, right? You know, so, but I mean, all the inflammatory diseases, these are things like asthma and diabetes and allergies and uh, lupus. And guess what? Heart disease, atherosclerosis has a huge inflammatory component. Alzheimer's disease has a huge, we now know, a huge inflammatory component, and so does clinical depression. And so just by eating this sort of modern, industrialized, westernized diet, we're setting ourselves up not only for high levels of neuroinflammation, but also for a much greater risk of inflammatory illnesses, like we've talked about, also clinical depression. So what's the solution? Well, we could change our diet. We could, you know, so where do omega-3s come from? They come primarily from uh, grasses and leaves and algae and the animals that eat them. Omega-6s come from nuts and seeds and grains and the animals that eat them. Almost our entire meat supply these days is grain-fed because it's just a really efficient way of fattening up. Right. So all of our meats, if you go back a couple hundred years ago. I never understood why people made such a big deal about grass-fed beef i just i just Mm -hmm. didn't get it i was like why is this like five times the price why are people making such a big deal about this but this is one of the reasons why i guess absolutely yeah so you know uh 150 years ago 200 years ago if one of our great 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 grandparents had a you know a slaughtered uh, animal and you know they're having a, a beefsteak. It would have actually been a pretty pretty nice source of omega threes. And now it's just chock full of omega sixes. Well, guess what? Almost all of our fast food, almost all of our processed food, our junk food, all the things, those sort of engineered, hyper palatable mm-hmm. foods that we love to snack on, um, they're chock full of omega sixes. They're inflammatory. Wow. Uh, added bonus a lot of them have lots of sugar also inflammatory love that yeah fantastic (laughs) so uh omega-3s we get from what well we you know we we don't have the right kind of digestive system to process grasses leaves uh algae maybe (laughs) but it's hard to come by so (laughs) yeah so you know the the most efficient source for most people is going to be seafood um the the fish that and other creatures that feed on algae and uh, collect omega-3s in their tissues. So cold water fish. Now, by the way, I got to issue a, a disclaimer caveat. Much of the fish supply in the world today is, is still farm raised and grain fed. So it has to be wild ocean caught fish or wild, you know, stream caught fish. Mm-hmm. It, it can't be farm raised. The, most efficient way of getting the 
high dose of omega-3s that many of us need to get our brains back on the right path comes from fish oil. Fish oil supplements, you know, most people prefer to take them in capsules just because you don't have to taste anything fishy. (laughs) Um, I prefer supplements that are that are high quality that are processed under nitrate because fish oil goes rancid really quickly so if anybody's ever tried fish oil capsules and they an hour or two later they're getting like nasty fishy burps and you know just horrible sort of reflux kind of thing that's usually a sign that they're they're using a product that was not processed properly so they basically they've got some semi-rancid fish oil now spilling out into their gut and their stomach is not real happy at that point (laughs) so so they're probably going to benefit from doing a a bit of an upgrade there there are lots of really good vendors um i i happen to use one I, i love this company they're called nordic naturals I don't have any financial vested interest in the company. I just think they do a really great job of uh, harvesting sustainably and, um, you know, processing at a really high level. So it turns out that a thousand milligrams a day of there's, there's a, and again, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but there is a molecular version of omega threes that is particularly anti-inflammatory. It's called EPA. If anybody wants to look it up, um, that you just look up uh, omega-3 EPA, or if you're ready for this, icosapentaenoic acid. And EPA <laughs> at a dose of 1,000 milligrams a day has been tested head-to-head against placebo, against antidepressant meds, and aggregated across all published studies so far, the impact, the effect size compared to placebo seems to be a little greater than the average effect size for medication. And it is particularly large for people that have blood markers, biomarkers of inflammation. So people that, you know, have any kind of sign of inflammatory illness, or maybe um, a little bit of uh, tendonitis or achiness, or, you know, people often know when they have inflammation, Uh, the omega-3 can be profoundly beneficial as an as a, a an antidepressant sort of intervention unbelievable so just to kind of like recap and run us through that again so we want to increase our omega-3 which is wild caught fish and also probably it would be a good idea to use a supplement as an insurance policy um what do we need to stay away from then in terms of so we don't get too many omega-6s yeah, so omega 6s by the way, they they persist in the bloodstream in the body for <laughs> this is going to be a little bit jarring to some listeners, but th- for many months. And so if it, really what we're after is to change the ratio in our bloodstream of omega 3s to omega 6s. We most of us have way too much omega 6 inflammatory, way too little omega 3 anti-inflammatory. If we just cut out all the omega-6s, it would take many, many, many months for them, all the ones we already have in our body, to filter out. And so we're not going to get an antidepressant effect for a long, long time. So, you know, depression being as such a serious, debilitating illness, we want to move the needle as fast as we can. That's why we supplement. But absolutely right. Long term, we also want to cut down on omega-6s. They're found in um you know what they're primarily found in is is grain-fed animals so meat that's that's grain-fed and more importantly seed-based oils so oils that come from linseed and and cottonseed and any number of of by the way i i gotta actually now really 
freak people out, but <laughs> not just seeds, but also grains are a type of seed. So corn oil, canola oil, basically any kind of plant-based oil is wow. going to have a lot of omega-6. So we really want to cut down our intake of, of uh, oils. If we cook with oil, we might want to shift to oil that's more fruit-based, like olive oil, uh, avocado oil, oils that are, are not going to, they're going to be gentler on the system in terms of their inflammatory omega-6 content. We want to stay away from fast food as much as we can. We want to stay away from junk food as much as we can, because it typically has a lot of heavily processed omega-6s added. Um, and in the long run, that's going to do us a lot of good. By the way, if there are any listeners that are vegan, vegetarian, and you know they're like, hey, I, I, I get it. I, I understand that omega-3s with a fish oil supplement could be helpful. I'm not going to consume fish because I'm you know, vegan by, by um, conviction. Well, there is a vegetable source of a shorter omega-3 molecule. It's called ALA. And vegan genomes learn how to reg upregulate the machinery that can convert this the short omega-3 to the longer epa that we need now those of us who are omnivores and i'm in that category I, I i like a good uh steak every now and again um we don't have that machinery but vegans if they will just consume one or two tablespoons a day of something like flaxseed oil mm their bodies will get enough of this shorter omega-3 to, to convert to the longer one that will give them an antidepressant benefit, anti-inflammatory yeah, benefit good. as well. What's the other one? Chia seeds? Throw that in your yogurt or something? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Chia, chia seeds are, are really versatile. Um, not only do they, do they have um, this a ALA, this omega-3, but they also have, there's, there's one exceptional omega-6 called GLA, that is a substrate for uh, a really anti-inflammatory omega-6. It's the outlier. It's the exception. Most omega-6 is inflammatory. <laughs> but this one, DGLA, is anti-inflammatory. And so we, we can uh, get that benefit by taking in sources of GLA, like chia seeds, like uh, hemp seed, like... Um, um, Oh, I had another. Oh, um, evening primrose oil. And oh. even just a little bit, even just a little bit in uh, steel cut oatmeal or porridge. <laughs> I love the real time translation there. That was epic. <laughs> you know, I went, went in, went in, went in Rome, man. Oh, man. So, <laughs> went so in Belfast. Good. Yeah. Exactly. I told you it's, it's, in, it's in my blood. That's it. Spread it, man. <laughs> Um, we'd love to kind of go back to something that you were, I feel like talking about earlier that I probably then took us down a different rabbit hole, but I'd love to kind of hear what have been the reactions of some of your kind of fellow colleagues and other researchers to this approach of treating depression, because it's not exactly the very squeaky clean one size fits all. Here's a Prozac. Okay, good luck. And, and we'll, we'll kind of see you again soon. You know, one of the things, one of the re most common reactions I've had is, look, we get it. The research is really clear. These different interventions work. They are as powerful, if not more so, than the medications that we currently have on offer for depression. And we're talking about things like exercise and omega-3 supplements and light box and, and vitamin D. But, the, you know, they say these are the very things that you cannot do when you're depressed. Mm. Right. 
Um, in fact, I had a family member who had a very similar reaction and, and I took it very, very seriously. And, and, and so my reaction was always the same, which is these are things that are difficult to do in the presence of depressive illness, but they are things that uh, when we are willing to partner with those who are depressed to help them do them mm. can be life-changing and healing and and profound. And so here, here's a really cool little neuroscience geeked out factoid about depression. When people are clinically depressed, circuitry in the left frontal cortex tends to go dormant. And the left frontal cortex has circuits that give us a spark of drive and motivation and initiative to go after things wow. that we want to pursue goal-directed activity. And specifically, if I can use this metaphor, to pull the trigger on our intentions, to, to, you know, to say, not only do I intend to do this, but I am now at this moment going to initiate that sequence of behaviors to make it happen. When people are depressed, they, they very, I've had so many patients that will tell me, you know, they'll sit there and they'll think about like, like they're inert on the couch and they're like, I should, you know, Dr. Alardi um, said in his TED talk that I, you know, it would be helpful. Like, wait, there was a study where just like 30 minutes of brisk walking, mm. you know, has this antidepressant effect. If you do it three times, like I should get up and, and get my, my sneakers on and, and, you know, get out and go for a brisk <laughs> walk. And, and, and they just sit there and they're like, I literally cannot my will myself to do it. Yeah. yeah. And what, what we have told all of our patients that have come through our treatment group is, I mean, we validate this for them. We're like, yeah, that is the illness. The illness will make this difficult. So allow us, if you will, to augment the function of your left frontal cortex for the next three months. Wow. Let us play the role for you in a caring, loving way of your left frontal cortex. We're not going to nag you. Right. We're not going to beat you over the head. We're not going to guilt you. And so it's like empathetic because it's like, dude, we know that you can't pull the trigger. Allow us to do it for you. <laughs> oh yeah, and so I mean, one of the hilarious things in in our pilot work and our preliminary work with this this protocol is initially we would have patients that um, you know they would be assigned every week. We'd give them a, a new assignment, and we'd 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 do some coaching calls during the week, the scheduled calls where we you know check in by phone. Um, and we realized after the very first pilot group, like. So many of our patients, they're able to, to like, you know, take a uh, omega-3 supplement, a vitamin D supplement. That's no problem. They're used to taking pills. But the, the adherence rate, the compliance with the exercise regimen was very low. So we decided next time around, we're going to hook them up with a personal trainer. Nice. Um, so every single person in our depression treatment group had a personal trainer. So session, by the way, we introduced this in, in the third session. So the session three... <laughs> They come in and we'd warn them ahead of time. After the session, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to meet with your trainer and you'll get your schedules out, your planners, and you, you know, you'll, you'll block out like three different one hour blocks during the week where you're going to meet and work out together. And, you know, so after the session to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm Biff, I'm your trainer and we're going to, yeah, we're, gonna, uh, Biff. yeah, oh, Biff. Such yeah. A great one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and picture Biff in my head. That's Biff, Biff was amazing. And, um, so, so then, so here's the beauty. 
So the patient will call her Sarah, you know, she's, she's, let's say she's 50 years old and she's, she's pretty severely depressed and she's sitting on her sofa and she's like dreading that she's got to meet with Biff and, and, and do this brisk walking, um, you know, and about 40 minutes. Cause I said 30 minutes of, of brisk walking is antidepressant, but it, it's got to be up in the aerobic range, you know, okay. where your heart's really pumping and you're breathing pretty heavy. And, um, you know, so there, it takes about 10 minutes to get there. So it's about 40 minutes of walking and Sarah's sitting on her couch and she's, she's really got this feeling of dread in the pit of her stomach and she's not going to do it. She's going to bail, but then she gets a call, <laughs> uh, a half hour at a time or a text or something, you know, Hey, this is Biff. I just want to remind you, we're going to meet out at the park and we're going to, and you know, and then she'll come into group the next week and she's like, damn it. Can I cuss on this? Is that Okay. We don't consider Dom a cuz, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've I've got I've I've got I've got some stronger stuff that I can pull out from the back room. Ooh, uh, the, the, yeah. the, the top shelf. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll stick we'll stick with Dom for now. Uh so she's like, damn it, um, you know, I I did not want to do this, but Biff called and that was just enough. Damn you know? that Biff. So yeah, damn that Biff. So I so I put on my sneakers. And part of it, by the way, is, is a little piece of social accountability as well. Right. It's like, Ooh, I can, I can summon up just enough left frontal cortical activity to get myself out the door. Yeah. A based on the text and B based on like, I, you know, poor Biff, I don't want to let him down. Yeah. And then, you know, so Sarah is back in the group the next, next Monday night. And she's like, you know, um, it's the damnedest thing because like we start off the walk and I'm just like hating it. Mm. Um, not hating the walk itself, but just like, oh, this is such an effort. And I'm like 10 minutes in and I'm like, you know, this isn't so bad. Mm. And I'm 20 minutes in and I'm like, this actually feels really good. Like, why, why was I resisting this? And at the end, I'm like, this is fantastic. Like, you know, what is my problem? Why? And, you know, and, and we're like, you know, Sarah, that that's, that's depressive illness. That's what it does to you. Um, and that's, but that's why it's so important for us to partner together. And I would say to you, to your listeners, the same thing that I I've said to literally dozens of my fellow psychologists and lots of doctors, MDs that have, you know, what they've done is they've, they've heard about our program. They've read about it. Um, they've seen a, a, a talk that I've given or something and they just write out on a prescription pad. Okay. You need to do 30 minutes of exercise yeah. three yeah. times a week. You need to, you know, you need to, uh, start doing these. And we haven't t- even talked about like anti-ruminative activities and behavioral activation. And, you know, anyway, we've got all these different elements and they write it out on a prescription pad, hand it to the patient and say, do this. Okay. Now I'm going to pull out a stronger swear word. <gasps> do this, do this shit and, and it'll get you better. And the patient will take it and stare at it for the next two weeks and beat themselves up and say, mm-hmm. I am such a horrible person. That's Why can't I yep. do this? I know what I need to do to get better. Um, maybe I should just go back and ask for a prescription of, of a pill. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's a bad option or that that's always, you know, a suboptimal option, but, you know, philosophically, I would say if we can beat this thing, just by improving the way we live in ways that we're designed to be living, to me, that's a much more elegant solution mm-hmm. when, when it works. So, but yeah. what it's going to take. Up, and then the other, the other nice part of that is as well is if 
you know, someone is, does have an experience where they they must have it, or you know, um, they are on a more extreme end of the spectrum where actually medicine makes so much sense. All of this stuff can still be applied to help and encourage and uh, make it easier as well. You know. Well, yeah, it's it's even deeper than that, and I appreciate the the way you frame that. So, so uh, a, a fun little factoid for the listener: my wife. You can imagine the conversations around our dinner table. My <laughs> wife is a psychopharmacology maven. Oh boy! In other words, she is a she's a psychiatric prescriber, and so we, we're trying to cover all the bases, right? And, and, <laughs> and but you run for president and you know the 2040s is going to be unreal <laughs> oh it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be lit make america not depressed again you know make yeah make america happy again if it's america we got it's got to be happy again pursuit right? of happiness um, baby let's do it yeah that's right hey it's woven right into our founding document <laughs> the pursuit of happiness so um my wife and I like to think I may have had something to do with this. She has in recent years, based on lots of the literature that I've shared with her, guess what she says to her? She'll hand her depressed patients a prescription for a medication. Sometimes, by the way, sometimes the prescription is for a therapeutic light box. Sometimes the prescription mm. is for a change in lifestyle, but you know, sometimes it, it is for a medication. And here's what she'll say. If you only take this medication and you don't change anything about the way you're living, your odds of a complete and lasting recovery are very low. Wow. And that's based on mountains of research. The average depressed patient, the average depressed patient who only takes a medication and does nothing else will have a reduction of symptoms, but not a full recovery. So it's sort of like, you know, if you have an ear infection, imagine you go to the doctor and you're like, well, give me a, give me an anti antibiotic or a drug or something. And like, well, you know, we can get you 40 to 50% reduction in your pain and your fullness in your ear and whatever. And you're like, well, okay, 40, 50% reduction. I guess that's better than I am now for sure. Mm. But then, you know, is it eventually just going to go away completely? And they're like, well, actually the odds are that over time, the whole thing's going to come back, wow. you know? And probably within the next two years. And by the way, if you ever stop taking the medication, then th there's a really strong likelihood that's going to come back pretty quickly. Um, that's where we are with antidepressant meds. I'm not saying, by the way, and there's a lot of individual variation. There are some people for whom they will go into complete recovery and they'll stay in complete recovery. But sadly, that is not the norm. Yep. And so all of the things that are part of our program are things that blend beautifully with medication, not only to amplify the antidepressant short-term effect of the meds, in other words, to help get people from that 40, 50% reduction down to complete recovery, but then to keep them in recovery, because that's the goal. It's not just short-term healing, it's long-term healing, and that's what we really need. Wow. I think uh, this is the perfect moment to uh, push the big red button that we have in front of us that will initiate the boulder metaphor, if you if you may. Sure. So, because I've worked with so many patients with depression that are struggling to understand what's happened to me, what what why is this happening? Why have I not gotten better before? Why have the medications not really got me there? Why has tr traditional psychotherapy not really been the solution for me. 
And so I stumbled on a metaphor like you. I'm a huge fan of literature and especially, I don't know why I've got a really soft spot for ancient Greek mythology. And I thought about the myth of, of the legend of Sisyphus, right? Who's doomed by the gods for his transgressions. He's doomed forever to try to push this heavy boulder up a hill. And as he gets close to the summit, close to his goal, it's too much. His strength gives out and the boulder not only crushes him, but then rolls back down to the bottom and he's got to go back and start the whole process oh. all over again. And we talk about things as being a Sisyphean task. And many of my depressed patients have described to me their battle with depression as having that Sisyphean sort of quality in so many words. And so one of the things that has really struck me as a clinical neuroscientist and as a researcher is that the wrongheadedness with our, our typical approach really parallels the, the, the legend of Sisyphus. And what I mean by that is Sisyphus is just one guy. It's just one person who's overmatched with the task. Well, guess what? The typical patient with depression, we throw one thing at it. And depression is not about one problem. Depression is about literally dozens of different types of pathology or mm. dysregulation. It's dysregulation of, as we've talked about, inflammation circuits, serotonergic circuits, dopaminergic circuits, um, circadian signaling, oxidative stress, glucose utilization. I could go on and on. There are cognitive biases. People have a negativistic bias in terms of the information they attend to. They only take in negative and filter out the positive. They project this negativity into the future. They withdraw socially, so they're cut off from the people, the very people that could very often um, help support them. So in order to address this treacherous illness, this multi-tentacled, multifaceted illness, we don't just want to throw one dude at the problem. <laughs> we need an army of Sisyphi, right? We yeah. need we need we need a whole we need Sisyphus, the lonely doomed uh, warrior. We need him joined by a full army, pushing the boulder from below, pulling it with ropes and rigs and cranes from the other side of the hill. Maybe there's a helicopter involved. We, we, <laughs> we, we got to cut. There might be some dynamite. I don't know. But, but um, we, we, we need to think about depressive illness as a much more formidable foe that really deserves all of our best efforts, not just a single medication, not just a single type of talk therapy. But how about this? How about a program where we get people moving and we get them connected and we give them tools to stop ruminating and dwelling on their negative thoughts and we address their vitamin D deficits and their omega-3 deficits and, and get them light. And I mean, you know, I could go on and on. That's, that's the program that we've developed. And, you know, one of the great joys of my professional career has been seeing some depressed individuals who had failed to, to find relief in multiple rounds of medication, multiple types of talk therapy. We had one guy who had been clinically depressed for, he was 61 years old. He'd been clinically depressed for 40 
years who who found complete remission mm. in our program. And by the way, um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how there's no one size fits all approach. Well, one of the really fun things is we've been asking patients like, okay, well, of the six core elements, and they're really more, depending on how you count, more like seven or eight or nine, <laughs> but of these core elements, because some of them we've sort of lumped together, yeah. but Book packaging of these, is a beautiful art, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So we're, but our story that we're sticking with is we've got six core elements. So which of these six core elements really move the needle the most for you in, you know, in your subjective experience, which do you think was the most important? And, and the, the, the really wonderful thing is every single one of these six elements has been named multiple times by multiple patients as this is the game changer for me. Wow. And by the way, um, it's not at all uncommon for somebody to say, yeah, and I tried like the fish oil or I tried the vitamin D and I didn't notice anything. Maybe it helped, maybe it didn't. I didn't notice anything. So this guy who'd been depressed for 40 years, he had, um, we used to call it emphysema back in the day, but COPD, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. He had trouble breathing. He wasn't getting enough oxygen. And so I ended up having to confer with his pulmonologist because he, he said the last time he could remember not being depressed was when he was in his early 20s, um, and he was a weightlifter. Wow. Um, not, not professionally, but I mean, you know, just sure, that, yeah. that was his, his thing. He was really into it. And he said, you know, I used to just feel so, so good, not while lifting necessarily, but just <laughs> afterwards. And, and he was like, it was my medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I kind of miss that. Um, but I don't think I can do it because of my disability. And his pulmonologist was like, oh, hell yeah, you can do it. We just need to get you a, a portable oxygen tank. And I thought he, maybe he'd be self-conscious to go into a gym, sure. you know, around a bunch of bros lifting, you know, heavy weights with his oxygen tank. He had no, not even an, an, an ounce of self-consciousness. He was, he was like, hey, um, if I can get back in the gym, if that can help me stop suffering, I'm all for it. And I, I mean, Matt, when, when he came back in the group a few weeks later and was telling us about the the sense of hope that he was starting to feel how his symptoms were starting to really noticeably improve. I mean, there was not a single dry eye mm -hmm. in the group and some of us don't, you know, we don't get misty very easily. Mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. like I said, I, I have some Scotch Irish ancestry. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, that's not, a, people not from Maine thing. are brutal. It's all right. Don't worry about it. There are actually yeah. there's probably a lot of similarities between Northern Ireland and Maine. Cause it's that you like not agricultural countryside, oh. isn't it? It's, it's that sort of, Probably very Dude. religious, like <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I I could give you so many stories. Let me just we'll just we'll 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 summarize it with this. My grandfather was a potato farmer. Oh, dude, say no more. That's it. And, and, and my my mother was raised in such a religious home that not only was there no drinking, not only was there no dancing, but even playing cards oh, was seen as morally Bro, suspect you're not like don't you dare mess with devil's cards like you, you don't you dare even think about it you'll get serious <laughs> trouble oh <laughs> uh, yeah so there 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 are some affinities anyway even among us battle hardened um clinicians there i mean you know for for this this man to talk about the healing that he was finding um through reconnecting with an activity from 40 years ago, it was, it was just such an incredible moment. 
And those are the moments we, you know, I think all of us live for to see a life-changing impact on 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 somebody else that that we care about and and that's what really gets me up in the morning professionally um it just it never gets old i when i teach this content to my undergraduate students i've got 270 students right now in my abnormal psychology class and you know i mean it's about all of abnormal psych but we take a little bit of time to talk about the impact of lifestyle yeah yeah and i probably had 40 students this semester that contacted me and said they had begun changing the way they live because they had never had any inkling that their nutrition affected their brain, that their movement affected their brain, that their spending time indoors versus outdoors affected their brain. And, and, you know, it's just like one testimonial after another. And what makes it particularly rewarding is that we're all going through this enormous stress of the pandemic together and you know what ultimately drives depression for most people? It's the brain's runaway stress response wow. and all the downstream toxic effects of that. So everybody in the world, just about, has had their stress circuits revved up for the past eight, nine months. Uh, rates of depression are skyrocketing. And we have tools, we have things that we can equip people with that can help stem the the tide of that epidemic and help empower people to take control of their own well-being. Um, and, and that's just, just a, a really beautiful thing. It's absolutely incredible. Um, there is a series of stock questions that we have asked every single guest uh, on the show. And uh, so I, I kind of feel like it would be wrong to uh, give you the, the free pass of that, even though you're not Northern Irish. Although, as you've said, you've got a, a connection there that we need to look into a little bit further, you know, to validate your, your NI card. Um, some of these are kind of heavy hitters. Some of these are kind of light and fluffy. We'll jump into the deep end with the first two and it gets easier from there. But um, out of everything so far and take this, whatever way you want to go. You, you can go personal, you can go professional, you can go sports and give us a sweet metaphor if you want. Um, but we love asking people, out of everything you've experienced so far, what has been the most challenging moment and how, if you don't mind sharing, have you been able to overcome it? Wow. Um, the most challenging moment... You know, I I remember being 25, and uh, as I mentioned, I was working for a big bank, and I was engaged to be married to the love of my life and super excited about that. But I, I had had a um, really bad skiing accident that uh, I sprained my neck, and it, it's fully healed. But at the time I would wake up every morning and my neck was really, really hurting. And, um, and I just had this feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. Like, Oh, I got to just do the thing again. I got to go in and, and do work that I'm just really not in any way enthusiastic about. And I just have no direction. You know, I don't, it's like, I, I maybe I've started this volunteer thing and that's exciting, but like, you know, it just, it feels so um, like a pipe dream to think about actually doing something with that. Um, 
And, you know, it was a, it was a really low point in my life. It wasn't, it wasn't clinical depression, but it was just that feeling of being worn down. Mm. And, um, you know, for listeners who've ever had to deal with chronic pain, mine lasted about six months and, you know, it, it just wears you down. And I, you know, I just remember having a sense of like, you know, this is not forever. This is not forever. Like you have so much I had, and I just had to do a little self-talk. Like, you know, you have so much to be grateful for. You have a woman who, who you love, who loves you. You have, um, you know, you've been given lots of, of gifts, um, talent. You can, you can probably do whatever you want. If you could just figure out, you know, what the hell you actually want to do with your life. <laughs> That's a hard part. Uh, it, it, well, it was for me. Um, but I think it, you know, more than anything else, it was just staying, connected to a, a feeling of hope, staying connected to the people in my life, to my best friend, to my parents, to my siblings, um, you know, to, to guys that I played basketball with, although I had to give that up for a while because of my neck. Um, and just keeping my eyes open and, and um, basically refusing to settle because I remember a really pivotal conversation where, and, you know, and I, I, my, my mother and I are really, really close. We haven't always been, we fought like cats and dogs growing up, but, <laughs> but we're really, we're close now. And, um, I don't think she'd mind my sharing this. She said to me at the time, you know, when I was going to walk away from, from this really lucrative gig with this bank and, and, you know, I was just like, I don't care about the money. I don't care about what other people think. It's just like, I, I need to be able to get up in the morning and feel like, like I'm doing what I'm meant to do, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm doing something that I can get, get up in the morning and feel excited about, get up in the morning and feel just like brimming with like energy and like, let's go get it. And she's like, you know, you're throwing away like a really, really incredible promising path mm -hmm. but you know uh i guess you have to do what you got to do and you know i just i i remember just this moment of clarity of just like yeah i have to <laughs> i have to do what i know deep down even if nobody else understands it and really the only person who really got it was my was my wife um and i think if it had it not been for her you know, there's a, a famous psychologist named uh, Carl Rogers who talked about unconditional positive regard. Um, and that his, his idea was that we only really have permission to get in touch with our deepest desires and, and our deepest sense of identity when at least one person is able to accept us fully as we are. And, and just reflect that back to us and say, yeah, I see you. I see exactly who you are, or at least, you know, as much as any mortal can. Um, and, and, and I'm good with that. And so, yeah, it was an incredible gift. It's brilliant, man. Flip side of that then, um, most successful moment? Wow. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, 
I, I don't even really know how to, how to gauge that. I mean, I, I got an email from a student two weeks ago that just took my breath away. Mm. Um, I, I, I can't read it on air cause I, I don't have permission for, I, I haven't asked permission from her, but basically it just talked about her struggles with mental illness for many years and her sense of despair, um, her frustration in treatment that felt like it really wasn't going anywhere. And with uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that she felt really didn't, didn't see her or care mm-hmm. about her very much as a person. And, you know, I've been teaching all semester, like probably most people in the world remotely via zoom. And, and it's been agony to not be able to see my students face to face twice a week. Um, cause I get so much out of that. I mean, they, they give me so much and I feel like I'm able to give them so much more face to face. But, um, you know, she told me in this email that, that what she had learned in class is weird. You know how sometimes on a podcast, you feel like you get to know the podcaster, even oh, though you've never met absolutely. them, but you've got their voice in your head. Yep. Well, I had, I gave students, luckily I'd, I'd been gathering this digital archive of videos of lectures that I've given over the last like five years and I've got them all. So I was able to uh, post those for on the class website, you know, for students to, and I would assign specific lectures for them to go back and, and, and watch and listen to. And then I would meet with them by zoom, um, which is kind of chaos, but you know, we, we made the best (laughs) of it. And I don't remember ever meeting this student. But, you know, she just said, from the bottom of my heart, like, I just need to let you know that this, this has changed my life. I have hope again. I, I, I'm doing better. I've started implementing a lot of the things that, that you've talked about, and I see how they're helping. And she's just like, I just feel seen and I feel heard, even though we've never met. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's the most successful moment. I, uh, the, you know, life is, has, I mean, I'm lucky enough that I've, I've had a lot of moments like that, but, but it was just a really nice reminder of, you know, why I do this. And, and, and even in the teaching that, that it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a responsibility, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, and it's an opportunity. And, and I think, you know, so many of us, are given these opportunities in life and we don't even see it, you know, um, like somebody's right in front of us, but we don't frame it that way. You know, I mean, I think about like a guy that I, I remember back, uh, at the, at the hospital where I was training when I was in grad school, you know, it was a psychiatric unit in the hospital and he was the janitor, you know, to come in and clean, clean the, you know, all the rooms and, and all the other areas. And he always had a big smile for every patient. And he, you know, told me one day, like, you know, he, he was part of the team, you know, Mm. he was part of making that stay a healing experience for these patients. And, um, you know, he found fulfillment and meaning and purpose in cleaning the floors. He didn't see it as a lowly task. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like, like a lot of us have these opportunities that are all around us and um, we just need to expand our vision a little bit. So unbelievable. 
Steve, the uh, final question. The the plane is coming in the land. And uh, it's the place we, we've ended every single episode. And uh, it's just simply this. If you could go back in time, you had access to some sort of um, incredibly safe time machine that doesn't distort reality or, you know, cause the universe to kind of implode. So you have that kind of uh, peace of mind. But if you could go back to uh, an 18-year-old version of yourself and you had just a couple of minutes of 18-year-old Steve's time, what sort of things would you say to him? Mm. You know, there's a temptation with this question to say that I would, I would say nothing, you know, I, I might just give him a hug mm-hmm. and say, bro, you, 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 you're going to learn so much. Like you think you've got it. Maybe I would say it. I probably should just be my thought bubble. So this is going on in my head. I'm not going to actually say anything to him, <laughs> but in my head, I'd be like, you think you've got it all figured out. Um, and there's so much you don't understand you're going to grow in ways I, I, you know, I'd be tempted to say if I could flash forward 39 years and show you your life, your head would explode. You, you just like, there's nothing about it that you would believe. Um, but I don't think I'd want to, you know, I don't think I'd want to give any spoilers. I don't think I'd want to, you know, cause I feel like, all the mistakes, all the growing pains, all the, you know, everything that was all grist for the mill. It was all part of it. You know, it's like, I think uh, my grandmother back to grandmothers, you know, she would joke sometimes like, Oh, it builds character, (laughs) you know? Um, But I, you know, I do think very often that character is forged in the crucible of, of, pain and and failure and 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 i don't want to give listeners the impression that my life has been filled with pain it far from it i feel like i've been in many respects leading a pretty charmed life so far knock on wood but uh (laughs) but yeah you never want to tempt the gods that way but but um i i i don't think i would want to say anything other than just maybe to give him a hug and say, mm-hmm. young man, you know, you're, you're going to do some things that are going to surprise you and things that you think you're going to do, you're, you're, you're not going to come close to, but, um, but it's all good. Bro, that is just unbelievable. Um, I love that. Thanks for sharing Thank that. You. And thanks, oh yeah. Thanks for thanks for going into the cave there for for a second. Uh, <laughs> I always love to kind of see see what comes out of it. Um, no, that was that was kind of therapeutic. That was great. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's a, I, you'll have to send me a bill, I guess. Later. <laughs> I always say to people, you know, podcast is just uh, free therapy, you know. That's just all it is. For, Dude, for, for he, me and for the guests. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the going rate here here locally is a hundred eighty dollars for a forty five minute session. There you go. You know, so, I should just start charging. I would love to see, you know, guest reactions whenever I slap an invoice, like at the very end. They're like, wait, what the heck, man? <laughs> <laughs> that um, would be amazing. But yeah, no, honestly, like, um, I just want to kind of 
take a little moment just at the end here just to um, and you hear a lot of podcasters do this because this is in some ways part of our function um, but legitimately if you know you, you you've been listening to this and it's really really been resonating with you and you just you know what it feels like for something to resonate you know it it just really deep in your bones almost of some of the stuff that steve's been saying i cannot recommend reading uh the depression cure enough uh it brings together in a really really accessible form just unbelievable amounts of research and super super practical tips um that i think all of us can apply no matter where we fall on the depression kind of spectrum these are things that can improve our lives um really really dramatically and the lives of the people around us and i always say to people like look for 10 quid or whatever it is it is the cheapest like books are the cheapest form of transformation you can get and i I love you know the therapeutic lifestyle change program i love tlc because it is unbelievably pragmatic and so you know highly recommend you go and check it out um I'll probably will also put together some form of a blog post, some form of a checklist, some form of something, uh, even just on the light box. uh, If you're interested in picking up one of them, probably some supplement recommendations as well. But, uh, you know, that book, whether it's you you get it in Kindle or paperback or audiobook form, I just highly um, recommend checking that out. And the other part of this is, look, even some of the stuff you've heard today, just give it a go and see what happens you know uh there's some great little kind of like ways you can hack yourself i feel like that steve has just kind of shown us here you know what about if you have the means why don't you book in a personal trainer even to go for you know a walk or a run with you three times a week if you can't afford a personal trainer you know get a friend or a family member to do it again the the vitamin d and the omega-3 super inexpensive but can have a really really big impact on your life and in general you know i'm just I, I I didn't expect to do this, but I, I'll just share like a really quick metaphor. Like, and this is something that I keep going back to myself. And it's the metaphor of like a spiral staircase. And as someone who, you know, like I've said many, many times in the show and even in this episode, who has experienced, you know, um, a battle and a journey with mental health, uh, someone shared this with me and it's made such a big impact, but it's, it's this idea of a spiral staircase. And you just keep thinking that you're going round and round in a circle you feel like you're not getting anywhere and you've maybe tried all this stuff before, you've tried forms of it or you've tried therapy, you've tried medicine and you're just like, I'm just stuck on this loop. And I just encourage you today, no matter where you find yourself on that staircase, just to keep going because little do you know, day by day, week by week, you actually can be moving up. You actually can be moving forward. And my hope for all of us, um, my hope for you, my hope for our friends and our families is that anyone who is experiencing um, depression or another mental health disorder, they will eventually get to the top of that staircase and get out. And for me, the therapeutic lifestyle change is um, a really proven and um, tangible way to, to start taking some of those steps. So yeah, uh, look, photos of Steve, couple of links uh, on the website, bestofbelfast.org, where you can also find 170 interviews with uh, our usual Northern Irish crowd. Uh, if it's your first time listening, really, really appreciate you. If it's your 180th time listening, appreciate you even more. And uh, hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us over this last um kind of hour or so probably two hours i don't even really know where we're at um but uh yeah thanks for being here 
Hope it was beneficial and I look forward to catching you next week. And Steve, uh, all I have to say to you, man, is just thank you so, so much for giving up your time, but also just thank you so much for the work that you've committed yourself to do. And I'm super, super glad, as are many people, uh, that you made that painful leap when you were 25. And uh, it's awesome to see where you've come. So, dude, appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, this this has been amazing. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to to be a part of this. But uh, I just want your listeners to know, I mean, you have already been an incredible source of inspiration for me just in, in your journey. So uh, I, I love the work that you do and I, I love it that you're, you're in the trenches, man. You're, you're, you're fighting the good fight and, and, uh, nothing but admiration, appreciation, affection. So, uh, to all your listeners, I would just say, you know, it's been a privilege to be with you. And, um, even in the darkest times, it's really, really important to remember. I mean, the days right now, I don't know when you're listening to this, but they're getting really, really, really short, um, in a, in a week, they're going to start getting longer again. The light is, is coming. And, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't think of a, of a better image just to hold on to. Um, there have been so many people that I've, I've worked with who thought the future could never hold anything but pain. They were giving up. They thought life really had nothing more to offer and, and they were willing to end it. And, you know, they, they, they held on. And, um, there may be one or two of you out there that are having that similar sort of struggle. And I would just encourage you not only to hold on, but to reach out. Um, you know, there, there are folks that, that will be there that will understand that will care. And, you know, probably, you know, Matt asked me the greatest joy that I've ever experienced. Probably, honestly, it's when I've worked with someone who had attempted to end their life and they, had lived. And then I got to see them heal completely and look back and say, what the hell was I thinking? How could I have almost thrown that away? Um, so uh, I, I just want to let you know, I've seen it so many times where someone can be in the, the depths of despair and they hang on and, and they heal. So um, I wish all of you the best and maybe we'll talk again.